reunion audio. You have a prepaid call. You will not be I'm Anna Dalvey, and this is the Anna Dalvey Show. You might recognize my name as a character in the Netflix series, but now you get to meet the real me. On this show, I will dive into the concept of rules and talk with the people who create or break them. From art, politics, fashion, tech, finance, law, and more, the Anna Delvey Show will share honest, unfiltered conversations that will question traditional notions of what's right and wrong, all recorded in my East Village apartment in New York while on house arrest. This week, I'm talking to Emily Palmer, an investigative reporter whose work has been featured on 2020, Nightline, HBO Max, Hulu, The New York Times, and Cosmopolitan Magazine. She has covered stories that span from inspecting child welfare laws to embedding herself with a cartel. Emily's rap sheet is long and growing. It includes the trials of drug lord El Chapo, R&B singer R. Kelly, and even me. All right. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for agreeing to do this podcast with me. So Emily is a freelance journalist. She's been writing about me since 2019, since I got convicted. I met her in courtroom, so I knew her face, but we never spoke until she showed up to visit me in Rikers. All all good relationships (laughs) start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she gave me her phone number. And I gave her a call. She published a story. And we kept in touch um, ever since. It's been, what, three years? Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> long time, long time. <laughs> a long time. One of my um, longer-standing reporter contacts I've had so far. And um, I'm your favorite. Obviously. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I was so insistent about the phone number. Do you remember? <laughs> I like, I was like, you have to remember this. So I was like writing it down and then they wouldn't let you bring the number back. And you're like, I'll memorize it. Like, There's no way she's going to remember it. And then she called me later that day. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know everybody's number by heart, unfortunately. Every, like all my lawyers, past and present, everybody's. Because in jail, like you don't have a contact list. You have to like everybody um, repeatedly by hand so <laughs> I probably I wouldn't know your number it was like it's a 917 one 919 919 yeah, yeah North Carolina <laughs> 929 <laughs> <laughs> no let's not give everybody my phone number Anna come on now <laughs> all right that's fair well it's, tell me how did you arrive um on covering like my trial how did you yeah, so I had just finished El Chapo's trial, mm-hmm. um, and it was about a month later, and my editor was like, do you want to cover this other story out of Manhattan Criminal Court? And I was like, did anybody die? And he was like, no. And I was like, did anybody have terrible drug addiction? And he was like, no. And I was, I was like, I'm there. I was so <laughs> excited. Um, yeah, most of the, the crimes that I cover are, like, really gruesome, Um and then I got to cover yours. So um, it was like a very, very different, uh, very different story. No, no murder or mayhem. Um, I was like, oh, what a nice criminal. Uh, <laughs> very refined. Um, so then um, my editor assigned me to the, to the case and I was in the courtroom every day. And partway through, he said, you know, we'd love it if you like went to writers and spoke with her. We don't know if she'll say anything. Um, but like, you should just like go and try. And the first time was like a total dream because I got there like six hours early. I like misread the like visitation schedule. It was so ridiculous. And I was at Rikers before 7am. 
I actually like arrived with some of the staff. Um, so they actually let me into this area I like should not have been allowed into. And then they're like, actually, no visitation till one. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I just like sat there. I actually did translation for them at one point because <laughs> um, I was really bored, I had nothing to do. And this man came in and was trying to pay bail for his son. And no one at Rikers spoke Spanish, <laughs> which was like insane to me. Um, and so they were like, does anybody speak Spanish? And I was like, well, I'll like try. I didn't know much about bail. So it was like a really hard thing because I was like trying to like talk about something I didn't really know very well in English. So it was like really difficult. Uh, and I like helped him. And then he tried to like pay me like so much money, like just like so much cash. He just grabs this like thing of like 100s and just like starts handing. And I was like, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> and so then he blessed me. Aww. And then I got my interview with you. And I was like, it was all connected. <laughs> I didn't take the money, you know, um, the good karma. And then, um, that first interview was really like easy. Like we, I like walked in, like we talked. Um, and then the second time, um, I went back and that was where everything was like falling apart because that was like right at the very end of your trial. It was, no, it was the day after you were found guilty. And so there were like, I get, I'm in the first bus there and there's like two other reporters there. And they're like, do you want to just do like a group interview? And I was like, no. And then one of the women spoke Russian and the guy spoke German. And like, so which language should we conduct the interview in? <laughs> and I was like, this is like such a terrible, like I obviously do not speak Russian or German. So you're just like trying to like keep me out. And um, I was like, well, like we agreed we like do like a group thing because like, you know, otherwise it was like racing, it was gonna be silly. So it's like, okay, whatever. And I was like, well, maybe since all three of us speak English and <laughs> no one else speaks any of the, like there's just like one person who can speak Russian. I was like, maybe we should speak in English. Um, not to be selfish about matters, but. Um, and then I was so happy because I get there and they like, we waited like many, many hours and we get through the final process. And then you rejected the other two. <laughs> it was such a great moment. Um, <laughs> um, but it was good because, like, we'd already done most of the interview. I just had, like, fact-checking questions because um, it was really difficult to, like, take notes there. Um, and I was like, they're going to know all of the stuff that I learned because I'm going to have to ask fact-checking questions. And they've done none of this work. <laughs> I was so happy when they were rejected. <laughs> they were very nice people. But it was just, like, it was going to be, like, so stressful. Um, and, yeah, and I think that was the time, too, that you, like, I was, like, trying to remember all the, like, German names and, like, cities. And you're like, you just need to get some paper and pencil. <laughs> and that was a totally different experience for me, too. Because whenever I've covered other, like, other, you know, stuff out of Rikers, they never let me have any, like, notebook or, like, anything. Um, and you just, like, raise your hand and ask. And I was like, ah, oh, she gets the <laughs> VIP treatment. And I got to go home with my little piece of paper. I was so excited. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't remember them being so tough in there, like, in Rikers. Not to like you. <laughs> I don't even know. Because in, um, in the visiting area, there are officers that don't really work on the uh, floor so it's like it's only the like it's that's the steady pause so I was like I wouldn't even know them yeah. I mean they would probably know me but it's like I would not interact with them outside of the visiting um area they because were so <laughs> much nicer than like any of the other interactions I ever had <laughs> did, did you go to Rikers a lot I did yeah um yeah mostly for people who were like accused of like murder so it might have been different too yeah. like like the types of like 
um, crimes that I was covering, like who I was talking to and levels of security. Um, but, but yeah. <laughs> so I went to Rikers all the time. It was like my second home. <laughs> Early on, my family was like, so have you met anybody yet? And then they realized I was spending all my time at Rikers. I'm like, never mind. <laughs> There's like a, an extra level of like necessity with incarcerated sources because as you know, like the person like has so many fewer like options and like, you know, you can't just call them back when you have a moment, you know, you have to take the call when they call. Um, so I think there's just like a different level of like responsibility to those sources um, of like being there, like when they call. Um, and so a lot of those source relationships are more long-term. Um, when I first started out, I ended up like talking with a guy for two years before he ever went on the record with me. Um, he had had a really bad experience with the media. He didn't trust them at all. The New York Post was writing these like salacious articles about him. Um, and at the time I was like a, a student. And so he's like, well, I'll let you like talk to me for your projects, like school. Um, I think it's so good you're in school, but like nothing like anywhere else. And I had like no connections at the time. So I was like, fine. And we just kept talking. Um, and he'd been in jail nine years without trial. And um, two years into the conversations, he, his case was finally set to go to trial. And um, by that time, um, I had graduated and I was just still covering the story. And he finally went on the record with me uh, after he was beaten up by a guard, delayed trial again. Um, and we went to court for several days and nobody knew anything. The judge couldn't find out what had happened because of like HIPAA, you know, medical rules. And so I went to the hospital, I found him and he, he was like all like bludgeoned up, you know, like his eye was swollen completely shut. Um, and he's like, I, like, it means so much that you came, like nobody else came. And then he was like, I'll go on the record with you. And then I was like, well, I guess I need to find a job. <laughs> I wasn't even employed yet. And so that was like one of the first stories I brought the times. Um, I still like, uh, am in contact with Emma on and off too. So, um, uh, that's El Chapo's wife. So we've talked on and off, but not as consistently as I have, you know, with you. I do have a few sources, um, who will like reach out to me and be like, I've been praying for you. How are you doing? Um, send me, you know, I've done stories about like families who are struggling in New York and they'll send me updated pictures of their children. And like, there's this one woman who like always reaches out, like whenever I'm like having like a, like a real low, it's like she like knows or something. And she always like texts like, you know, I've been praying for you. I hope you're doing well. Here's a picture of my kid. Everything's so good. And I, I like love hearing from, hearing from people. Cause like you always kind of wonder like, you know, what happened to this person? How are they doing? Um, and it can be like, it can be hard in some circumstances. You can't keep up with everybody. You don't want somebody to feel obligated to. So it's really nice when somebody reaches yeah. out. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Do you ever feel like you've become part of a story? <laughs> um, no, never. <laughs> um, I guess, like, you sort of folded me into your story a little bit. Yeah, how so? Uh, with your art. <laughs> <laughs> with your art. And I was like, oh, my name is right in there. Um... But yeah, I mean, like, the reporter's job is to, like, not be a part of the story, but I think sometimes, like, realistically, like, that that can change, especially with, like, a longer-term source relationship, right? Like, it's, like, inevitable that, like, you get to know the person better and, like, you know, I guess stories merge. <laughs> is it, like, anywhere that you would, like, draw a line? Um, when people are always like, are you an Anna friend? <laughs> 
<laughs> that question always makes me so uncomfortable. Um, because What's it, what do you tell them? <laughs> <laughs> I quote you. Do you remember when we were asked that? We were like standing like by your like stove area, uh-huh. like the first night you were out, and I was there to like interview you. And there was this other woman there, and she like throws a camera in my face, and she's like, "Are you friends with Anna Dolly?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." Um, and you were like, "It's a." Close, close, close source relationship. <laughs> you saved me from that one. I was like, what do I say to this woman? Um, yeah, I mean, you're my favorite source. How's that? <laughs> and I'm just meant it even like in general, not even like in relation to me. You know, yeah. just wondering. No, like, I mean, I think it's like, it's important to keep certain, um, you know, certain like boundaries. But I think it also depends on like when the story ends, right? Um, so, um, you know, I've written about people like many years later, like, it was like a one-off story and like, you know, um, they've come to Thanksgiving or something, you know, like when like the story's over and you can be like, where nobody has to worry, like what's on the record? What's not on the record? Uh, although I actually have random friends I've never written about who are like, Emily, this is off the record. I'm like, who do you, like, I'm not writing about you. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> to the extent, I'm like, unless you go and kill somebody tonight, this is off the record. Got it, okay. So... <laughs> Well, I know you covered, um, like, you wrote about my art show, so that was a little bit of departure from... Uh... <laughs> well, you know, I cover crime, and then I cover Anadolu. <laughs> oh, that's... I'm a whole... I'm a whole different... <laughs> yeah, you're your own little topic area. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great to hear. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, you mentioned that you felt like you became a part of the story when you um, saw your Instagram handle. I think it was... Was it a Twitter handle that I included in one of my sketches that I've made while I was in Orange County Jail in ICE detention? Um, so how did that make you feel? How did you find out? I, rem- I don't remember if I told you. You told me. Yeah. You told me ahead okay, of yeah. time. Yeah, I just can't you're wait. Like, no. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're in one of the sketches. I was also in the one where you're, like, messaging people oh, in yeah. quarantine. Mm-hmm. And um, I was towards the top of the list, and you're, like, in no particular order. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay, Anna, fine, whatever. Um, I think I threw them alphabetically, so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> And you are E, so you would be... (laughs) It was more like I was messaging you all the time with that checking (laughs) question. I was definitely at the top. I was like, but wait, can you do this again? Uh, We texted all the time. It was like, one time I was um, in the, like, urgent care. Do you remember that? And you're like, you can't die. I can't tell anybody this much about my life again. (laughs) I was like, thanks for the well wishes, Anna. All right, like, can you hold off until you're done with the story and die a little bit later? <laughs> yeah, anyway, so I'm in your art. Um, <laughs> it takes, because, well, GTL is just so very, it's a venue publishing service if you use it from, um, like, as an inmate. It just takes, it's like, it just, they only recently updated it so I could actually copy messages. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it's like I would need to copy something before I send it because once a message is sent, it cannot be copied anymore. There are obviously no screenshots. So it was an insane time commitment actually to like message people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So GTL is the getting out, well, they called it the getting yeah. out app, which was just so crassly named. Um, and they, there were like two apps that I had on my phone. One was for the texting. Uh, and the other one was for video calls. Oh, Although I never successfully had a video call on my phone. 
Like, it always automatically went to the computer. So I would have both things up and just wait till, like, your face popped up on one of them. It was, like, so weird. Um, this is specifically for, I don't, I think incarcerated people would be an overstatement, really for people who were in ICE detention, right? No, I think it's for everybody. So there I was, uh, I was just there with, like, regular criminal inmates. Okay. So, and everybody had it. And, okay. uh, and it just depends on... Um, so there's like contractors. So I guess um, every jail picks uh, what service to use because I've been like in jail in the same state. And um, I mean, Rikers didn't have anything back right. in the day, but then um, upstate prison has JPay, which right. is like a different, but they're like Corelinks, I think, which is the federal yeah. uh, Corelinks and JPay. It's like a Kodak Black song. <laughs> uh, and there's something else. Um, we never chatted over that. I feel like you were still getting over over the uh, I'm not sorry quote for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, a I'm lot. Of yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> but it's not everywhere either. Um, like it's definitely in New York, mm -hmm. but I was talking with an inmate in California and I was like, so we should do fact checking by text. And he was like, um, I'm in jail. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, but don't you have the getting out app? And he's like, no. Um, he thought that I had, was like insane. I was like, well, other inmates do, and it's so convenient. He's like, I'll call you with my 15-minute call. Take it or leave it. I was like, okay, it's fine. I mean, that was such a like dramatic improvement because in Rikers, we did not have like any of these tablet services. And uh, we only had 21 minutes on the phone every three hours. So, um, and it's only two calls. It's like, if I call you with my 15 minute call and like we hang up after five minutes, that's it, the, the call was gone. And the second one would be six minutes. So um, it's actually, they did like, it's a major stride for improvement. And like, they just figured out how to monetize this more. I think though, the most important improvement to that was giving like inmates some sort of real-time access to the outer world, mm -hmm. um, less the calls and more like the texting. Mm -hmm. Because with this inmate in California, if I miss his call, you like, yeah. you know, and it's impossible to always get to your phone. There have been so many times I'm like grabbing my phone and, and I see the missed call. And I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> like I can't, I can't call this guy back, right. you know. Um, and if he doesn't call me back, then it's like, you know, um, there's just like no way of, of getting in touch. And the nice thing was if I missed a call from you, I could text you and be like, hey, like I'll be out of the subway in like 10 minutes. And you mm -hmm. could just, you know, yeah. call me when it worked again. Um, but, it, you know, I always worry when there's an inmate, if I miss a call, it's like, no, like I was like in the subway or like I wasn't like avoiding you, you yeah. know, like and there's no way to like communicate that. Yeah. So it was just nice. It I feel like made it a little bit easier to communicate in like a, a regular way. Yeah, 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 definitely. And um, yeah, and it's like it was, it was one of the big frustrations when you call somebody and like when you're in jail and you don't know, is it a bad time? Shall I try again, like immediately? Or just, yeah, just like being in that position. That was really frustrating. I find like every inmate has their own like go-to with that. Like, <laughs> um, and like that, that guy who's in jail for nine years, he would always call twice and mm -hmm. then leave it. Um, with you, we could just like text, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, this, this guy in California, it's like one and done. If you miss it, it's like days, <laughs> you know? You're like, no! <laughs> 
what an inopportune time to be on the train. Uh, so yeah, everyone has their own. But yeah, it makes sense. You're like, well, I don't want to bother the person. If it's not a good time. Mm-hmm. It's not a good time in two minutes, you know, later. But like sometimes, you know, the New York subway, it's actually like, you know, incremental. Yeah. I've actually jumped out of a train before, you know, to like take a call. Oh, wow. uh, just like midway, midway through a ride. I was like yeah. getting off at 72nd, getting back on, you know, just trying to make it work. Oh my gosh. I think that's like somebody needs to write a story about all the communication services, which is such a, like, I feel like it's so obscene and it's like such an exploitation of like what mostly are like minorities and poor people. You know who could write that story, Anna, <laughs> is our interviewer here. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't fancy myself. I'm not fancying myself a journalist. I feel like it's just insane what they're doing to people. It's like, how much have you spent on like talking to me? Well, you were, oh, so much money. <laughs> My credit card debt just, you know, piled <laughs> up all because of Anna Delby. I just blame you for that one. You know, your next trial, right? Emily Palmer went to the poor she house. Me. <laughs> she couldn't afford all her calls. Um, no, but it, but it is expensive. Um, they have like a, like, what is it, like 425 or 475 like surcharge just for accepting the call. And then on top of that, it's like 15 or 20 cents a minute. Um... And so, yeah, there's like a like texting ended up being a lot cheaper. Mm-hmm. I found if I put like 30 bucks at a time on it, um, that like, uh, and then would write you long narratives. <laughs> I'm sure you loved getting like having to scroll through my whole message, but you would get it was like, I don't remember if it was like 15, 20, 25 cents, 25 cents, yeah. 25 cents a text, and you would get like 1500 characters or something and so you could really I could go to town I could ask so much in like one 25 cent thing um I always hated it like mess up the rapport of like the conversation but it was like I could like respond to all these different things ask all these different like follow-ups um and it did it let me my editors were thrilled when it was like texting fees because the calls you know they really add up yeah um and, and I get to expense it because it's part of my job. But yeah. there's so many people who, like, that's your way of communicating with family, right? Yeah, and that's really expensive. And it's so sad because, yeah, it's like if you um, have to, like, if you want to stay in touch every day and it's like, I think it's like $8 per call or something, almost 10 Then they have the video calls, which is... Um, I think $15 per call or something like that. It was like, well. I think it's also by minute. I by think minute, that there's yeah. maybe, um, it ends up, I think it's 15 cents a minute. So it's less per minute, but I can't remember what the surcharge is. I mean, they all add up. Yeah. It was, it was I would have hundreds of dollars in, in calls and yeah. texting. And I was like, I promise that we're like, Keeping on topic here, it's just really expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really, really crazy. And the way they do it, like for us, it just, they charge us by the minute. So it's like, they don't charge me for sending you a message. And like that's actually really smart because they want for the inmate to keep texting the person, right? right? Because if I would be scared, like if an inmate is kind of like cautious with the money, then the other person does not respond as much. But it's really smart for them to charge by the minute, and I just like keep texting and texting and texting. It's like then and then, then you have to respond. <laughs> Look at Anna finding the the, the money, you know, <laughs> the, money uh, the monetizing aspect of this. But it's so yeah. true. Like everything about. Just, um, I mean, I mean, this is why we have so many incarcerated people in this yeah. country, right? Is because it makes other people money. Yeah, it I sets mean, up. It sets you up to like to exploit you. I will literally spend I don't know about fifty dollars a day just like to stay online. 
And uh, it's like, there is no way, there are no push notifications. So for me to find out, like if somebody texted me back, I would need to log in and that's like five cents a minute um, and check it and like manually refresh it. Mm-hmm. I don't, it's like, it doesn't just pop up. And um, yeah, it's just wild. Like I wish somebody, I mean, it's good. It's a good thing that somebody like um, invented that system because Definitely. it's better than nothing. Like I would give them all my money for Wi-Fi. What? I was just like, when, when Wi-Fi breaks in jail, that's like the end of the world for me. And it happens. <laughs> and you just never know. Like it may get fixed like in half an hour or it may not get fixed in a week. Yeah. And both, like you just never know what's going to happen. I would just be like, I was just <laughs> losing hair like in real time. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. My life is over. I cannot text. I have to call people. Well, even though you had Wi-Fi, you still couldn't do like regular internet searching, right? No, like, no. So I remember you would make all these lists of all the things you wanted to read when you got out. Yeah, that system is just the worst. I don't know. Somebody needs to do something about it. <laughs> it should be free. Like the phones should be free because nobody chooses to go to jail. And I feel like just staying in touch, it's just like should be imperative yeah. with, the, with the family. That would, that would assume though that like incarcerated people had like real rights in America. Right. Keep it, dreaming, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> I just find it real sad. And just like seeing other girls, they can't talk to their kids. And it becomes a punishment on... Um, the family too, because if your like loved one is incarcerated, it's like you going like you feel pressure to like have money on your phone. You're not gonna be like, oh well, I'm not gonna put money, my dad is in jail. Like you don't do that. Right. But it's like it's not really your fault. Your dad's in jail, like because you didn't do anything to get him in jail. And um uh, you just like take away from, I don't know, your kids. And I don't know, it's just really sad when, when you people- think about the country has like 1 million incarcerated people, right? But that doesn't include the numbers of like family members who are affected. Yeah. I remember the very first time I ever went to visit someone in jail, obviously I was just going as like a regular person. So people were like talking to me. It was like before I was like really reporting. I was yeah. just, you know, meeting, you know, Carlos Vega, that guy who'd waited forever in jail. And this woman was like, you know, I don't know why you're here, like who you're you're visiting, but I just want to tell you, like, you need to be careful. Um, like when they get, she's like, when they get your man, they get you too. And like you, like you have to make a choice about how often you visit. You're allowed to visit. She's like, I used to come twice a week. She's like, but I realized they had me behind bars as well, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, what to what extent, you know, and how that changes that relationship. Um, yeah. And so many times going to, you know, Rikers and seeing these entire families and dads with like kids on their knee. And you just think about like the families that have been completely broken by incarceration Damn. and the help that something like texting can do from this GTL app, mm-hmm. but also how it's also sucking a lot of additional money from families who, the majority of whom, don't have yeah. the money to, to you know, to, to throw at that $50 a day. I mean, that really adds up. Yeah, definitely. And it's just, like, really sad that this is a group of people they choose to, like, charge. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody, like, they just need to publish the financials, <laughs> how much money they make and how much. <laughs> somebody was joking, I should have been, like, a face of GTL just because of all the people I, like, onboarded. <laughs> who didn't have, who didn't, you, you really, you could have done advertising for them. I almost thought, I was like, oh, my gosh, uh, now you have, like, I don't know, three, four hundred people who never even knew what GTL was. Now they, <laughs> they like, have She's their like the ambassador. I know, right? <laughs> like, at least give me, like, better, uh, better, <laughs> some kind of a good deal. I don't know. Three minutes, nothing. No, no favors from them. <laughs> It was like I was the Edison Ray of GTL. <laughs> the, the brand ambassador. The brand ambassador. Mm-hmm. 
So what's like the, the difference between like covering me and um, I think Emma, you cover a lot of her and like uh, Gloria Alvarez and... Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I also wrote about El Chapo's El Chapo, wife. sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Emma, we call her Emma. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and I was chatting with her a few months before I met you because El Chapo's trial was a few months before yours. Um, I mean, like, every person that you talk to is, like, is really different. But I did sort of inadvertently, like, cut out a little, like, female criminal, you know, <laughs> side gig. Um, but, yeah, I ended up um, I ended up uh, interviewing her for a story during her husband's trial back in 2018, 2019. And, um, and then afterwards, I approached her about, like, continuing to talk and, like, maybe you know, going to Mexico and seeing things from like another side. And I ended up, um, she invited me to stay with her family and I stayed with her family for um, a couple of days um, where she grew up. And um, it was like this completely like spontaneous you trip. You weren't scared? <laughs> um, you know, I didn't expect that question from you, Anna. Everybody else, but you too? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I like kind of had an invitation. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I was like, I'm like going in and like investigating the cartel, you know, yeah. like that would be ridiculous. But like, I was like, I just want to like see and observe. Um, and I guess most people don't ask that. <laughs> so I was like treated like really well. Like um, I, I made some errors. I bought the wrong plane ticket. I flew to the wrong state of Mexico. Oh. So I was going to Durango, Mexico, um, and I bought a ticket to Durango, Mexico, but it was closer to Sinaloa. Like, it's like all country back roads, and so it would have been better to fly into the neighboring state and drive over. So I didn't know. So I fly in, and I'm seven and a half hours away from where I'm trying to get to. Oh and I don't drive. Mm -hmm. Like, I can't drive. Uh, and there was only one bus that goes once a week there. And by the time I would have arrived, my plane would have already left. Like, it, like <laughs> you had to wait several days. And then it was like a two-day trip. It was like, so I got on Twitter and a Twitter follower drove me. Oh, wow. And, and your Spanish is really good, right? Yeah. No, I, 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 <laughs> it was not as good then. I like, I, but yes, I like, I spoke Spanish, which was definitely helpful. No. It was the only way I could communicate with Emma because she doesn't speak English. Um, but yeah, I got on Twitter and he's like, oh, I've been following your coverage. I'll drive you there. Oh, wow. And he was a social worker in the town. So yeah. he knew people, which was really great because then like more people trusted me to talk and like, because they knew him. Yeah. So that was really nice. So we ended up, <laughs> oh, what a relief. We like, I get there, I go to this like festival. I like spend time with her family. Um, and then I just sort of like sat on it and wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. Um, and I'm actually finally coming out with a story like next year about my time in Mexico. Oh, wow. So, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's exciting. Who for? Or, or you can disclose. Um, for Elle magazine. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You're really like all over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like you have to adjust your writing styles, like depending on a publication? Well, this has been a big like shift for me because... I'm like delving into magazine writing and everything that I've done up until this point has been newspaper writing. Um, and all of my editors, when I've written for newspapers, have been like, oh, you do so much better in magazines. Like you write so long and like descriptive, like you should really do magazines. But now that I'm like doing magazines, it's like, oh, it's like a different 
thing, you know? Like, it's like, there's its own challenges, like how to write and even how to show your reporting and like what you need to say versus you don't need to say. And it's just, it's just very different. So it also is just like so much more long-term. It's like so nice to like work on a story and then it publishes. And like here, it's just like, like waiting for magazine publications, you know? Like I wrote this story in August. It's not publishing till like spring or summer, you oh know, like gosh. the whole year late, you yeah. know? So, um, so that's just like something new to kind of get used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, news is like more adrenaline. You're like getting more excited. It's happening. Exactly. It's like, yeah. Like, yeah. I, here, this is going to feel like some sort of like life moment because it's <laughs> taken so long to do, you know? Um, but yeah, it's like a couple of years of reporting um, in Mexico. I went back in 2021 and um, spent some more time in like another area that was like important to her story. People do ask, like, were you yeah. scared, you know? And, like, and I was, like, I, like, at, like, I went to this festival and was surrounded by, like, 200, like, armed guards, like, AR-15s. And, um, and I'm, like, really clumsy. And I just, like, tripped and fell into one of the guys. Like, can you imagine? He, like, caught me and he's like, oh, you okay? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for, like, not shooting me when I, like, fell into you. Anyway, um, that was the most dangerous thing that happened. Yeah, no, I was told that... I was told, like, nothing will happen. You're, like, totally safe. And I was like, well, I guess as long as they're, like, on my side of things, like, everything's really good. Uh, so, yeah, I just sort of, like, deep breath. Like, what can you do once you're there, right? And, like, just, like, trusted that everything would be fine. I'm very religious. So, like, that was, like, a part of it for me, too. And I was like, yeah, it'll be fine. Don't feel like I'm just asking you this. It's not like in um, relation to me. So do you ever feel um, that you like maybe being exploitative with any of your sources? With you, absolutely, all the time, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no. Um, I mean, I think it's important to like, I mean, that's part of like the whole boundaries thing, right? Yeah. Of, like when like you're friends with somebody, like there's just like a different kind of allegiance. Um, I think it's important to like maintain your boundaries so that you're more prone to sort of, like, being ready for that. Um, exploited. I mean, it's, like, in all different ways. Like, even just, like, one-off people today. Like, I had this, like, story that published not in the Times. And, like, an editor had gone in and made, like, an error in, like, and misspelled the guy's name. I mean, of all the things, you know? And he was, like, really upset. It's like, you know, like, I, like, committed a crime myself, you know? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. Like, I had your name right. Like, it just got changed. I didn't see this. Like, I'm so, so sorry. Um, and he, like, lists out, like, everything else. And, you know, and there was this, like, sort of, like, demanding, you know, thing. And it's like, no, like, we will absolutely correct anything, you know, any errors. You know? So you can have, like, very small things where somebody's just sort of, like, almost over asserting because they're they're angry and they're frustrated and they're upset and you sort of like talk them down and everything's fine um and you know uh, you know there's you know I've, I've covered crimes that ended up being interconnected with politics and there were definitely situations where I looked back and I was like I didn't see certain things that were happening and I don't think that it affected like my reporting in a bad way but it certainly like affected how I saw the story later and like you know, ways that I was, like, more careful the next time and how mm. I, you know, interacted with those sources because um, it can be it can be very complicated. You know, you're entering whole new worlds when you write about stories, you know? Like, you don't know people's, you know, relationships and um, and who they know and who they don't know. And, no. You know? Um, and they can be very tangled webs. And, you know, sometimes it's this thing where you're like, well, I just need to, like, make sure I don't, like fall into some sort of pothole I didn't see because I didn't understand the world well enough, right? And other times it's like, oh, this person was talking to this person and they were, you know, shoring up their story together and you just had no way of 
of knowing. So those are those are things you're always sort of like keeping keeping an eye out for. Yeah. Working on an investigation now and everybody knows everybody and everybody also is sleeping with everybody else, <laughs> like on both sides, like the victim and the criminal. And like, it's a very, uh, it's a really good story. But I'm like, every time I talk to somebody, I'm like, okay, but who... Like, who, who are they talking to and who are they sleeping with? And who, like, like who are all the different allegiances that I'm not going to, like... And you have to, like, be able to see that so you can, like, make sure that you, you know, ask the questions in the right way. And, like, if something goes back to somebody else, somebody feels that you're siding with one person or the other. You're just sort of trying to get an understanding. It's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like you get stuff wrong a lot? Never. <laughs> never. Never. Just that one time it was my editor's fault. Um, I mean, like, that's, like, part of being human, right? Is, yeah. like, like errors do happen. Um, so whenever anybody ever, like, complains and says, oh, this, you know, was wrong, I always go back to my notes. I always go back to, like, a recording if I have it. I try and, like, figure out, you know, what went wrong. And sometimes, sometimes the person's just mad and angry and, like, pretending like it didn't happen, you know? And sometimes you actually made a mistake. And sometimes you're like, I don't even know how this mistake got there. You know, like, like there can be, but, you know, part of the, the you know, process of recording is fact-checking, right? It goes back to my very first job. So um, that's something, especially with a bigger piece and an investigative piece and a piece you have more time with. You're just going line by line, fact by fact. How do I know this? Why did I say this? Um, because as, you know, time passes, things can get muddled. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so what did the whole thing, so I'm... I'm making my, I guess, my first couple episodes um, of my podcast about perseverance. So I'm just trying to get people's stories. Um, and I guess with you, like, I can see it a lot how you need to just, like, be very perseverant when getting, trying to get to the bottom of the story, like, even trying to get to somebody to talk to you or, like, find a way or, like, an angle. Um, and so a lot, like, I can see... Yeah. So do you want to, like, say anything about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you've been on the receiving end of my fact-checking and all of my many, your, many questions. <laughs> that was, we were persevering together, I feel like, sometimes. It was, it was a lot of questions. Um, I feel like, really, the only people who fully understand my reporting are, like, sources where I do that. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Like, you know, like, every, like, I'm, you're asking so many questions and it's just trying to get, like, every little, you know, you know fact in there. Um, I, but I do think, like, the reporting profession is like is something that like takes a lot of perseverance. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, you know, when I talk to like aspiring journalists, I'm like, if there is anything else in the world that you can imagine doing, you should do that instead because it's like a really hard job, and it's you know, and people hate you for it. You know, <laughs> and you don't make lots of money. Um, so it's sort of like thankless, you know, and like your personal life is terrible, you know, like, like, <laughs> do I even have one? You know, like it can be very hard to balance like work-life balance. And so it's a job that I love and I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, but I wouldn't wish it on anyone who didn't feel the same way. No. Um, Would you date an journalist? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, tried that, been there, done that. <laughs> did, not, did not work out well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think journalists aren't that great of people, you know? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah. But you don't discriminate. It would, like, not, not date somebody. Well, yeah, I mean, talking about rules, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> rules are made to be broken. So, you know, I guess if I met, like, the perfect 
man who also happened <laughs> to be a journalist, I would forgive him uh, that sin. But... <laughs> so what's your goal standard of, of journalism, of journalism, like past and present? Uh, um, I mean... I do love the New York Times. I do love the Wall Street Journal. I see that you have a paper copy here. Um, not the New York Times, I see, but the Wall Street Journal. It's a great paper. Um, I, I mean, I do think, though, it's important um, to not, you know, feel like there's, like, one publication, right? Like, I think one of the best things about journalism is that you do have reporters from all sorts of different publications and all sorts of different perspectives who can sort of bring something to it. And I think that the importance of that is something that we're only really, like, starting to recognize within the industry, um, which I think is really good that that's finally happening. Um, there's been incredible, you know, reporting since, I mean, for centuries, Ida B. Wells talking about, you know, lynchings um, of, you know, Black people in the South, you know, to, um, you know... You're from the South, right? And I'm from the yeah. South, yeah. Um, you have, you know, um, reporters who, you know, have entered into insane asylums in like the 18 and 1900s to report from those, you know, inner walls. There are people who, you know, today are, you know, reporting in Mexico and other uh, countries where being a journalist can be a complete death sentence. Um, and I think that that's like, I mean, when we talk about gold standard, when you like, you know, put your life on the line, that's, you know, something that I think is like incredibly brave um, and really goes to this sort of um, higher calling. Yeah. Or oh, like in Russia, what they're like doing to reporters now, you could be like facing yeah. life in prison. Yeah. So crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just really, really, yeah. Just kind of like I think people like complain about um, the American system a lot, but there's just so many that's much worse out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Oftentimes in the U.S., if you're reporting on a dangerous story, you don't usually have to worry about dying. There are certainly, you know, you know, other, you know, other cases, but the, you know, there's, I think, hundreds of deaths of reporters in Mexico every year. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's like one of the highest in the world. Yeah, um, and that's just a total atrocity that is overlooked. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All the ones, uh, or like sometimes they just like work with the government, and they're just like you can't really be impartial there. Right. Then you're just like the microphone for the government. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also dangerous in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was it like to like cover R. Kelly? <laughs> oh, that was a really hard trial. Um, um, like sex crimes are just like this whole separate. Um, I mean, murder is obviously terrible, right? And, like, drug crimes are terrible. But, like, there's something so um, awful as, like, a, like, as a woman, I, I found it really difficult to um, to report on. And I know that the men in our company also found it really difficult um, to report on. Um, you know, I'm sure there were people amongst us who had traumas of their own that they were having to contend with. Um, but there was, there was, you know, there was this one day right before the um, verdict where there had been these audios of, like, some of the sexual acts, and only the jury had heard them. And some of the reporters like, no, no, we have to hear them for journalistic yeah. standard, which was, like, true. But I remember being like, you know, if I don't have to hear that, like, I think I'll live. Um, and right before the verdict, they finally played them, and they were so awful, just, like, you didn't see anything. You just, like, heard what he was saying to this woman and, like, and heard her responding. And it was just, like, so incredibly visceral that I thought I was going to throw up, um, like, just, like, in this room. And, of course, this was, like, at the height of COVID. Um, it was, like, 
well, it was fall 2021, but it was like the first trial back in the courtroom. And I remember thinking, if I throw up, they're going to think I have COVID and they're going to like throw me out. <laughs> so I was like keeping it in, but it was like so awful. And then they announced that there was a verdict and they cut off the recording. We like ran to the, to the courtroom. So, um, cause everything was sort of like weirdly virtual there. So we were in different, different places and not actually with him at any point. Um, that was one of the hardest cases, um, that I, that I covered for sure. Um, just because of the, the content, oh, no. um, and the women who came in of varying ages. I mean, just decades of, of abuse, right? So there were women who were in their forties who were talking about when they were like teenagers and what had happened to them. And that was like really hard to see how that trauma had like lived with these women for so long. Um, and it was also really difficult to like, when you heard from a woman who had happened decades before and she'd like processed it better and really thought through it. And then women who had only happened a few years before and you could see how like completely broken in like a really raw way, um, you know, they obviously felt about these things. Um, and that was, that was hard to cover. There was one instance that was so gross, um, that I was working with another reporter on the case and, I was like, do you think we need to mention that? Because it was just so gross. And he's like, I don't think so. We just like decided together. We're like, we're not reporting on that. It's so vulgar. Like this woman shouldn't have this carrying with her, like, you know, in the New York Times for, you know, the rest of her days. And of course, like all these like tabloidy publications wrote all about it, right? I mean, she talked about it on the stand. And I remember the editor calling and being like, why didn't you tell us about this? And um, the other reporter, Troy, and I were like standing there and we're like, we just, we just didn't think the readers needed, <laughs> needed to know. And he's like, well, as the editor, it's like my decision to make. And we're like, yeah, you're right. We like totally overstuffed. Um, he's like, but I, I do kind of agree. He's like, I think, I think we can let it go. He's like, but just next time he's like, don't spare me the details. So like, okay. Um, so that was, that was a tough, a tough case for sure. Uh, a lot of bonding between the reporters, I think just because of like the topic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So what was like your most exciting journalistic experience? Like what's like, talking what was the to head? you, obviously. Aside <laughs> from talking to me. Um, I mean, you know, going to Mexico was like, um, and, and reporting, um, and like meeting with Emma's family was, um, was really exciting just in that, um, it was not something that people really had access to before. And it was the chance to do something that was a little bit different. I think, you know, um, and you would know this well, like a courtroom presents certain sets of facts, right? And like each side presents the facts that tell the story they're trying to tell. Um, and you need both of those, but you still don't necessarily have a full picture of what happened. There's still all these other things that are left out because there's not time or it's not convenient or they don't have evidence to that fact. Um, and so to be able to go to Mexico and like witness certain things, even though I was very aware that I was getting, you know, a glossy, you know, view of things because I was being shown around, but I could still sort of see and understand sort of how, um, the narco culture had developed in that region and, um, and why so many people in that region, you know, actually support the cartels. Yeah. All right. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> so what's like, what would you like to, what would you like to do next? And like, what's next for you? <laughs> Um, well, um, it's always like whatever my next story is. Um, so I have, um, sort of like a, like a crypto crime type story that I'm working on now, um, that spans multiple continents and it's like very, 
um, interesting. And I'm uh, talking to all sorts of people involved in this story. Um, is that the couple, the the rapper girl? <laughs> <laughs> the rapper girl. Uh, the Razal Khan. <laughs> Oh, 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 no, 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 no. It, actually, nobody knows about the story yet. That's what's kind of cool is it's like, it's like, yeah. Oh, they have, they're, they're going to get indicted after. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, they have been, in, yeah, they've been indicted, but it's just not made like a lot of media splash. Um, and I'm just talking to all sorts of people who have this like kind of great sort of like insidery knowledge as to what has happened. And I have all these documents and um, it's sort of one of those stories where like everybody's talking. Um and, you know, the more people that talk to me, the better, because I don't have to use their names so much. You know, I can yeah. just, like, kind of piece together the world. So that's taking up the next uh, couple of months. Like, I can hardly see kind of beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, do you feel like you kind of get into the topics that you cover? Like, for example, crypto. Like, I don't know how much you knew about it before. So I feel like it's... A- I knew, like, nothing about it before. <laughs> um, and it's still very much a world that I'm, like, learning. Um, <laughs> then you open an investment <laughs> advisory firm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, definitely, it, it, it's a less straightforward world than, like, narco-trafficking, for instance, yeah. right? It's like, like, narco-trafficking is is such an easy business model to, like, follow. It sounds weird because there's, like, all this violence and other things, mm-hmm. but ultimately it's just, like, a business operation. Yeah. Um, and crypto, obviously, is that too, but there's just so many different, like, kind of, you know, components, and it's such an insular world, like, really, like, more so than, like, cartels, you know? <laughs> like, um, and so it's, like, it's a harder... It's been harder for me to, like, uh, learn the world, but it's been, like, an interesting exercise. <laughs> what's worse, crypto or cartels? Um, I mean, you know, that the sad thing is that should be an easy answer. And, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, I have some real questions. The more I learn, the more I'm like, oh, my faith in humanity just like plummeting. Um, so how do you like navigate personal ambition alongside the news? <laughs> Like, with, like, covering stories? Yeah. um, I mean, sometimes it's just, like, what I'm assigned, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't pick El Chapo or your case. Like, they were given to me, which um, I had, you know, I've talked about the importance of a great editor. Like, I had a wonderful editor who was... So how does that happen, exactly? Um, I got El Chapo because I speak Spanish. It's not (laughs) like I'm the only one, but, like, they... um, I was paired with another reporter who didn't, and they thought we would be, like, a good complementary pair. Um, and then I don't know why they gave me your case. Maybe because they're like, oh, she was so good with Emma. She can just, you know, <laughs> talk to Anna now. I don't know. Um, but it was, it was a nice balance. That's one of the nice things about freelancing is that I get to jump around to like interesting cases and different stories. Um, and since COVID, you know, COVID closed the courts for a long time, um, as far as like going to the courts and like covering full trials. And so it was, um, really nice. Um, for me in like just sort of taking a step back and saying like what are the stories I want to write about and like pitching a lot of my own stories Um, and so you know the stories that I've done this year have all been stories that I either thought were really important to tell or just like I really enjoyed doing. So it's the one question I ask everybody have you ever been arrested? <clears throat> I've never been arrested, but I have ridden in the back of a police car where they only keep like the criminals, and I was like 13 at the time. <laughs> but I was not technically arrested. Um, 
Uh, that's like one of my like go-to facts, you know, like two truths and a lie. It's like, I've never been arrested, but I have ridden in the back of a cop car. Um, my dad got into like a car crash and it was pajama day at school. And I was like a really good student. Like I loved school and I was really excited about pajama day. And we got into this car crash and like the car like hit on my side. It was like, it was like the tar cars were totaled, but everybody was okay. And I get out of the car and I'm like, I still want to go to school. My dad's like, it's okay. Like we, we can skip today. This is like kind of traumatic for like eight in the morning. I'm like, no, no, I really want to go to school. And he's like, well, I can't get you there. Like the car is like gone. And so I looked at the, the cop and I was like, can you take me to school? And he's like, no, it's like, it's against protocol. And I was like, well, technically you would be aiding and abetting truancy if you didn't take me to school. <laughs> And so he let me get in the car and I got in the back of the cop car and we like drove the other like two miles to school. It's this little tiny school and the principal would open the car door for everybody who came out and like, you know, good morning, da, da, da. And he gets there and he sees me in the back of the car and he's like, and he like tries to open the door and it's like, well, you may have actually ridden the back of a cop car. You know, you can't get out. Yeah. Somebody has to get you out yourself. So he like, he's like, oh, oh, like he can't get me out. And he's like, he's like, what happened? What did you do? What did you do? And, uh, and the, the cop like, like, sir, please step back from the vehicle. And he like opens the door and like everybody in my school is like lined up at the window. Like what happened? What happened? I was like such a cool kid for like one day. <laughs> What an entrance. <laughs> <laughs> what an entrance, right? <laughs> um, so do you believe in rules? In rules. Um, as long as you can break them. As long as you can break them. <laughs> so do you follow rules a lot yourself? Um, gosh, now I feel like I might get arrested. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I think some rules are, are made, you know, to, like, you know, keep public safety and, you know, things like that. But I think I, like, press... And I was, like, such a rule follower in school, you know. Couldn't even miss when I got into a car crash. But later, I don't know, I started to, like, see more nuance. So I break rules sometimes. <laughs> but not the law. No, not the law. No, not the law. Not the law. We'll go with that. <laughs> so have you ever um, decided not to publish something that was new newsworthy? And, hmm. and why? <laughs> so I've done stuff out of the Caribbean too. And there was a piece, I won't say which publication. I write for multiple publications. Uh, you can deduce yourself. Um, and I had a piece out of the Caribbean and um, it had, right at the beginning of COVID. And there were all these unemployment lines. Um, and there were unemployment lines everywhere, all across the country. But nobody's really reporting about them anywhere. And I found out through social media and people that I knew on St. John that it was happening there. And only afterwards did we find out it was also happening in New York. It was like, I was like two or three days ahead, right? I'm like, we have to write this story about like, because at the time we didn't know like how easily it could be contracted. And the, like, there's these huge lines of people trying to get unemployment. And I wrote up the story and um, I had all these different quotes from different people on the island. And um, the island is 80% black. And I had one quote from like a white guy who had just moved to the island a few years ago. It was a great quote, but like it was important to have him with a lot of other people, right, from the island. And an editor cut it down to just his quote. And I was like, I'm not comfortable with this. 
like, this isn't representative of the island. It's a good quote, but we have to have at least one other quote from somebody else. What was the quote? Um, it was it was about how it was affecting tourism. Yeah. And I was like, I mean, yeah, but, like, we have people, like, an unemployed... Like, you know, like, it was, like, an important point to the story, but it was, like, not the most important point. He just said it in a really, like, glib manner that, like, my editor liked. Like, it sounded nice. It was a good quote, but it, like, couldn't be the only one. And it was, like... This was, like, March, April. Mm-hmm. So, like, 2020, I was, like, living alone. Basically, I didn't talk to anybody in, like, eight weeks, you know, except sources on the phone. And I was going totally crazy. And I was, like, about to have my own, like, personal breakdown, right? And so it was, like, late at night. He, like, cuts all the other quotes. It's just this one quote. And I... 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 I I should have been a little bit, like, more diplomatic, but I was like, I will die on this hill. I was like, we cannot only have this quote. I'm, like, personally not okay with it. It's, like, my name with this. Like, this is not reflective of the reporting. We have to have one more quote. It's not even very good journalism to only have one quote in a story. I was so mad. I just, everything. But I literally wrote, I will die on this hill. And then I called my mother, and she's like, did you send it? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, you said to, like, like a really high-up editor, I will die on this hill. And I was like, yeah, I did. And she's like, well, we'll probably be telling that story for a while. And I was like, okay. And uh, he let me die on the hill. We didn't publish the story at all. So that was the end of that. It was, like, Did you see it as a victory, or...? Well, at the time, I, like, struggled, because I, like, really would not have been comfortable with it publishing the way Uh he wanted it to. But at the same time, it then meant that the whole story didn't publish, right? So, like, it could have been, like, kind of a cursory story that was problematic if you knew who the guy was, right? Uh, And if you knew about the island. And I think it would have offended people on the island if they had read it. But uh, who knew him and, like, you know, understood the, the culture around it. But it also meant that, you know, most of our readers are not on that island. They're, yeah. like, they were in the continental U.S. They would have had no idea, and they would have at least known about the problem. So I had to really weigh, like, had I, like, like, like waged the right war, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, I did feel really bad about if that had published, and I was glad it didn't. But I also, like, wanted people to know about the story. Yeah. And, like... Ultimately, I don't think we wrote anything about that island with the pandemic in a broader sense beyond tourism at all with the pandemic. I certainly didn't see the story. So it's like, you know. So how much do you, how much control do you, um, like, are you comfortable giving up to the editors? Or it's like, how does really the dynamics work? It was very interesting for me to to talk about, like, to other journalists about how much, um, because, you know, I, I, like, I'm on the other side of it and, um, a lot of it, when they know I won't like something, you're just going to be like, oh, well, it's not me, it's my editor. Yeah. <laughs> Which they're probably lying. I mean, it might be. It is true that sometimes, have I ever told you that? It was definitely my editor, um, for the record. Um, I mean, I think it, like, I, I think it depends. Sometimes, I mean, it really, like, the relationship with, like, a reporter and an editor is, like, almost sacred, right? Like, you really have to be able to trust your editor is not going to, mm-hmm. like, make some horrible glitch. Like, my least favorite thing is when a source complains about some factual error. I'm like, but I didn't write that. And I look back, and some edit was made at the last moment that, like, totally was, like, incorrect, yeah. right? And, like, that's, like, the worst feeling. Because then you're like, no, I promise I was listening to you. I was paying attention. I didn't write that. You know, like, that can be bad. Um, or even just, like, 
the editor pushing for a different angle of the story that maybe was not what you most discussed with the person and you, and you want them to like feel comfortable. It's like a balance. Yeah. I feel like when I have a source that's like really forthcoming with me, I like, like I fight for them with my editor if there's something that I feel like I'm not like comfortable with. Yeah. At the end of the day, like the editor is like above in the yeah. hierarchy. So like there are things that like go through unless you decide to die on hills like I do. <laughs> so there's also that option. And you have like multiple editors, right? Because you're a freelancer, right? So you don't like, it's, it's not one person that you always work with. So. Which is like good and bad, right? Because like if I had one editor that I just like loved, I would love to just have them. Then they know all the projects you're working on. It's like terrible when you have like two or three editors at the same time and they all want their copy like in 30 minutes and you're like, well, <laughs> I'm not three people, you know? Like that can be really stressful. Yeah. Um, but it's also nice because as a freelancer, I've worked with really great editors um, and I've also worked with terrible editors. And so, you know, you get to sort of, as a freelancer, pick the stories you do to the extent that you can, like you have to make money, right? But like you can pick the stories and you can like, you know who the editor is and like you yeah. trust them. And so, um, yeah, and, and I think sort of how you vibe with the person, like they kind of pick you or not too. Yeah. So why did you choose to be a freelancer and not work on a publication? <laughs> um, you know, that's interesting. I like kind of fell into it. It was never like a, it was not like a decision from the get-go to be a freelancer. Um, I started out as a fact checker at the Times uh-huh. and I was making $120 a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was allowed to work at the time. Minimum wage in New York was $10. So I was making $10 an hour and I could work up to 12 hours all on one day, which my allotted day was Friday. So I could work 12 hours on Friday for $120 and I couldn't work any other day. So obviously I had to make all $120. Like I wasn't leaving some of that money on the table. Like it really mattered. So I would work 12 hour Fridays. Um, and I would go into the office and, um, but I had like, like an access card for like, whenever. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I'm going to like, this is like my investment in my future. I'm going to like talk to editors. Like I'm just going to be in the building every day talking to editors, even though I'm only working on Fridays. So, you know, editors are like, oh, do you want to grab a coffee like in 30 minutes on like the third floor? And I'd be like, yes. And I like <laughs> run to the subway and like get on and like go. Um, and in one of those interviews, um, I was sort of like pitching a couple of stories I was working on and I had just gone to the grocery store and my card had been declined, literally trying to buy bread, which is like the most demoralizing, like horrifying thing, right? Like I like literally couldn't buy bread. I was like so scared. My parents were like putting money in my account and it was like, I just remember like crying on the street because like you're not in New York, you cry on the street, you know? And I went into this meeting and I was just like desperate, you know? I had these other stories I wanted to do, but they were like long-term, like investigative pieces. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just need work. I was like, I will go anywhere at any time of night. So they gave me crime. <laughs> <laughs> and they sent me to all five boroughs at like two, three in the morning. And, um, and I covered just like one like horrible thing after another. My first story was a woman who got decapitated by a Coca-Cola truck. Like it was like a like a hit and run type thing. And I get to the scene and I like see the body and I was just like so horrified, you know? And I see the family and they're like crying and I was just like like so overwhelmed. And my editor called me and it was like my first story ever, you know, and he's like, Emily, like are, are you there? Are, like, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, yes. And he's like, where's my story? And I was like, um, I haven't written anything yet. And he 
he's like, well, did you talk to the family? And I was like, obviously not. They were like in pain. I, I let, let them be. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, are they still there? I'm like, no, they left like an hour ago. He's like, <laughs> anyway, it was a total fail. I wrote like a description of like the shattered glass on the, it was like such a disaster. And I have no idea why, but against his better judgment, he gave me another assignment the next day. And the next day a woman dropped her baby off the balcony and the baby died. Oh my gosh. And I like talked my way into like talking with the family and went with them to child welfare services and like never left their sides. And we got these like a couple of really great stories. And so I just kept like kind of doing that. And suddenly I was able to pay my bills, which was exciting. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, and I like basically just never had time to apply for like a staff <laughs> position because I kept like going to these like crime scenes and working. Um, and then eventually I just like really liked it. I liked that I could write for different publications. I also sometimes write for Cosmo and I love how different that is from the Times. Um, just very different styles yeah. um, and different editing styles too. And that was just nice. So I've kind of gotten into this beat where I really like it yeah. and it's like worked for me. Are you trying to move away from crime? Uh, <laughs> or... You can't leave a world of crime, Anna. What? Crime pays, you know? <laughs> Not everything does. So. Uh, yeah, I, I can buy bread now yeah. because I turn to a, to crime. So Yeah. <laughs> Not, not in the same way I did. Not in the same way you did, you know. <laughs> so what would you be like your ad advice to your younger self when you were just starting out? <laughs> mm. One thing that I, I tell um, younger reporters all the time is like, believe in your career. Um, you know, nobody else can do that for you. Um, and people will even say like, oh no, you shouldn't do this. Everybody has a different idea about what you should be doing with your life, right? And at the end of the day, like 20 years from now, they aren't gonna be looking back and saying, oh, I wish you'd done something differently. Like nobody thinks about you more than you, right? Like like, like you have to be the one who's like happy with, um, with your career and so. Uh, I was talking with a younger journalist recently and she had just had like a really bad experience where someone was telling her that the path she wanted to go down, it didn't matter. Who cares about entertainment journalism? It's like, it doesn't help the world. And she's like, I don't know, like maybe I should go into something different. And I said, do you want to go into something different? Because like this dude isn't going to be around 20 years from now telling you these things, yeah. you know? Um, and so I do, I think it's really important to just believe in, in like in your vision and, and your career and, um, you know, we all make mistakes along the way, but like, you know, at the end of the day, they get to be your mistakes, not, oh, I just listened to the wrong person and did the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what advice would you have for me? <laughs> we can just copy and paste that right there, Anna. Um, You know, stay away from Photoshop. <laughs> Why? <laughs> um, make sure all your bank records are real. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. Um, it was so much fun, Emily. Thank you for inviting me. I really love, like, you know, coming a few months later, seeing, like, all the artwork up and how you've made this place, like, actually, like, a home. Right. I have to yeah. sit here 24-7. It's much more homey without so many camera crews and with art on the wall and without a New York Post reporter trying to take weird pictures of your bedroom. This is much nicer. <laughs> I like it a lot. And uh, where can we follow you? Okay. Um, Instagram and Twitter, while Twitter still exists, um, <laughs> is at Emily E. Palmer. 
um, because there's so many Emily's. I have to use my middle initial. Um, and then TikTok is the same, but with uh, periods separating out the initials. So it's emily.e.palmer. Emily and I have a long history together. She certainly has found herself in a lot of intense situations, all for the sake of the story. I'm so glad we finally got to switch roles, even if for just this one time. The Anatelvi Show is a reunion audio and audio app production. The show is produced by Sean Glass, sound supervised and co-produced by John Eckhaus. Reunion audio?